especially because Ron is not stepping aside and allowing his son to just run with the mantle. Ron is going to keep saying correct, very controversial things. And the reporters are going to keep coming to Rand and saying, well, what about your dad says this? And what about your dad says that? to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey there, Liberty lovers. Welcome to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. My guest today is the host of Anti-War Radio here on KPFK in Los Angeles, as well as the Scott Horton Show, which you can hear every Monday to Friday from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern, and one of our affiliates, LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. Scott Horton, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Scott, I've been a big fan of your show for some time, and you know, anyone out there who has an anti-war interest or is interested in foreign policy, I cannot recommend the Scott Horton Show highly enough. And Scott, I want to discuss a few foreign policy goings-on today, but since this is your first time on the show... Could you just give our listeners a little bit of your backstory? How did you become such a passionate anti-war advocate? And how did you find yourself out there talking about this stuff every day with your own show? I started doing radio back in 1998, the very end of 1998. And, well, it's pretty much just sort of anti-government extremism overall, you know, being a libertarian abolitionist type. And yet, of course, foreign policy is the very worst aspect of the U.S. government, the most violent, the most expensive, the most disruptive. I think also it's so neglected by everyone else. It seems to me like uh, maybe that's a little bit of extra reason to try to pull up that slack a little bit where, you know, so people can be exposed to alternative narratives from time to time compared to what they see on TV about the reasons why the government does the things that they do. And I guess... I'm just pretty good at seeing through their lies, and so I try to just pass it on. That's basically what the show is about, is why what they say about why we need to have wars isn't true. Because it never is, so it makes my job real easy, really. That's funny. You mentioned there it's it's neglected, and it, it seems to be in so many ways, because you'll get into conversations with people, even libertarians who are so great on you know domestic policy, they'll be against the war on drugs, and this kind of thing, and then you get into foreign policy, and sometimes it's just kind of like, uh, yeah, I know there's some bad stuff going on over there, but it's kind of glossed over many times, and that's why I'm, I'm so glad there are people like you out there that are really pressing on this subject and trying to remind people that, hey, let's not forget there are bombs going off every single day, and we're paying for them, and people are dying at the other end of those bombs, so I think it's certainly a worthy task that you've taken up here. Um, you know, let's start off by talking about sort of the latest boogeyman that has really been pushed by the government, by the media, as an imminent threat, and that is uh, John McCain's good old buddies, ISIS. So who exactly are these guys? Give us the full skinny of just what you know about ISIS. Well, it's al-Qaeda in Iraq from Bush's war. So when Bush invaded Iraq, if you picture Iraq, the whole, you know, southeast of the country, basically, is the Shiite south. Call it Shiistan now, from Baghdad down to Kuwait. And they are the 60% majority of the country. So when Bush invaded, he overthrew the minority Sunni government, the Ba'athist government of Saddam Hussein. And the country was mixed, but in the south and east, it's predominantly Shiite. And in the west and northwest, it's predominantly Sunni. And then, of course, up in the very north and northeast is where the Kurds live. And they're Sunnis, but they're Kurds, a uh, different ethnicity, not Arabs, right? So anyway, those are the splits in Iraq. So Bush comes in. 
And really, at the behest of the Iranians, I think unwittingly, Bush overthrew their enemy, Saddam Hussein, and then fought an eight-year war to put their Shiite factions in power, Iran's pet factions in power, not just Shiites, but the specific groups that Iran favored were the ones that Bush favored as well, and that he put in power there. So the Sunnis were completely driven out of power, where they had been the minority rulers of the country. They fought back in that uh, famous Sunni-based insurgency that the Americans fought all along. And after it took almost two years, a, a year and nine months of the occupation and the war against the Sunni-based insurgency before they finally teamed up with this guy, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, and before his group finally declared themselves loyal to Osama bin Laden and declared their, uh, renamed his group Ansar al-Islam, he renamed it Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And then the Americans fought them, and they had been fighting them for about a year at that point, and then they continued fighting them up through 06 and about halfway through 07, at which point these guys are such horrible, radical, uh, you know, fanatical, murderer, psychopathic, kind of uh, Mitchell Prothero calls them school shooter types, uh, that the locals basically got sick and tired of them and marginalized them. And that was the Sunnis that they'd been helping fight, turn on them, stab them in the back, hung them out to dry because they basically pushed their authority too far. They were the the guests helping fight the Americans and the Shia. And they tried to make themselves the rulers. In fact, they did, tried to declare themselves the Islamic State of Iraq back in 2006. And I think that was what really kind of inspired the Sunnis to go ahead and start shooting these guys. No, this is our country, not yours. That kind of thing. Well, so in 07, after the, the tribes turned on them and marginalized them, basically they'd been kicked out of Baghdad by the Shia and the American Army and Marine Corps. And then the Shia said, all right, thanks for winning the war for us. Now get the hell out, George Bush. And they made him sign on the line that said he would get out by 2011. And so he did. And the deal was that the government was supposed to continue bribing at least the leaders of Sunni society there, the tribal leaders, the former bosses, to continue kind of being the government of their, their own area, the so to continue the payments of the so-called awakening. But of course, they didn't do that. As soon as the Americans left, the Shiites, because George Bush had helped them take the capital city, they figured, well, they know better, in other words, than to try to occupy the predominantly Sunni parts of the country. They always wanted to break off just the south and keep it. They got the capital city, and now an 85% Shiite city, that was their bonus. They're not really trying to rule Mosul. That's why when the Islamic State came in June, the Iraqi army just turned and fled. That Iraqi army is just a fancy name for another Shiite militia. And so it's not their territory. They turned and fled. I'm skipping ahead, but I'm just trying to explain how, you know, what's happened here basically is the final split of Iraq. It's the declaration of Sunni independence from George W. Bush's stand, Shia stand, Ayatollah land down there in the south from Baghdad down to Kuwait. And now so but here's where even though it's 100 percent George W. Bush's fault, it's also 100 percent. Barack Obama's fault. And what's cool about responsibility is it's a matter of quality, not really quantity. And so the numbers don't actually have to match up perfectly. Um, and so it's both all their faults because what Obama do, where Bush unwittingly created a gigantic Osama bin Ladenite jihadi stand in the Anbar province in the Sunni Triangle in Iraq for eight years, Obama outright took their side in Libya and in Syria. It sounds like, you know, stupid birther-level conspiracy crap, but it's really not. He took the side of the Mujahideen, 
because the policy was to try to weaken Iran. And since America gave two-thirds of Iraq to Iran, well, oops, I guess consolation prize is we can try to take Syria away from them. That's what the Israelis want. It's what the Saudis want. It's what the Turks want. And so the Americans, first in Libya, and the Saudis and the Israelis, of course, hated Gaddafi too. I don't know what the Turks thought about him, but anyway. Uh, they got rid of Gaddafi, stabbed him in the back after Bush had brought him in from the cold in 03, murdered him. We came, we saw he died, Hillary Clinton cackled. And then they moved on, and they were fighting it. And we covered this at antiwar.com and on my show all through the war in 2011, that these guys are the Mujahideen. They brag to the British papers. They don't even care that, yes, in fact, they are veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq, where they killed Americans. They fought in the Iraq war against the American occupation. And these are the guys Obama flew as air cover for their militias in the fight against Gaddafi. And then they turned right around and started funneling guns and fighters onto Syria. And that only stopped, as Seymour Hersh reported, when the Benghazi crisis in September 11th, 2012, when the ambassador was killed, when the whole project blew up in their face. Well, how do you think that might blow up in your face, helping a bunch of bin Ladenites run guns to a war in Syria? Like they're going to love Americans just because we're giving them money and guns. When, of course, and in fact... Rachel Maddow, of all people, I think explained the motivation for that attack better than anyone before the official Democratic Party line came out, what she was supposed to have us believe. She pointed out that the Americans with a drone had killed a al-Qaeda guy in Pakistan named Al-Libi in June of 2012. And Zawahiri put out a podcast saying, hey, Mujahideen in Libya, if there's any Americans around squatting in the center of your hornet's nest, it would be a good time to sting them and get revenge for our fallen brother, Sheikh Yahya al-Libi. And then that's exactly what they did because America was on the side of their enemy. And so anyway, and then they took all the guns and they funneled all that to um, as much as they could they had been up to Syria, and the Saudis and the Turks and the Qataris especially have been financing them. I think Obama's got cold feet as of, you know, uh, Ambassador Stevens' death, and I think he's afraid of going down in history as the man who outright fought a war on the side of al-Qaeda. But this is why he's so stuck in the policy now, because after the Mujahideen grew up into this, you know, ridiculous Frankenstein monster times ten— a perfect clone of bin Laden literally declaring himself the autocrat and the religious caliph of all Muslims on earth and all this in, in uh, the territory that used to be western Iraq and eastern Syria. Now he has this crisis because he's got to turn the whole regime change machine around. This whole time he's had America and, of course, the Israel lobby and in Congress. They've had all of the momentum toward getting rid of Assad because that's what Israel wants because that's what Saudi wants. And um, so now they got to turn the whole thing around. Instead of fighting ISIS's greatest enemy, Assad, they've got to somehow lay off Assad and now take the war to ISIS, the creature that they created. And um, that's not to deny the agency and the responsibility of the people who actually are the leaders of ISIS. They are men and they're making their own decisions. And in virtually every case, they deserve to die for what they've done. They're, they are fanatical butchers of innocent people. But the point being that uh, this entire thing is basically just the consequence of George Bush and Barack Obama trying to figure out what the hell they're doing over there in a way that uh, gets people killed. And now they've announced a policy that can't possibly work. When we had 150,000 troops in the country, we couldn't get rid of the Islamic State. Back then, all we did was create it. And so now we're going to take them out with some special forces and some air power. We're going to destroy them. 
when when the Islamic State now under Baghdadi is a thousand times as powerful, well, I don't know, a hundred times as powerful as Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and al-Qaeda in Iraq ever were back 10 years ago? I don't know, man. I think uh, we're in for uh, a real ugly slog here. And I'm sorry it's such a long answer, but I hope hopefully it did answer your question. No worries at all, because, I mean, it, it's enough to make your head spin, but that's because U.S. foreign policy is generally so schizophrenic that it really would make your head spin just trying to make sense of it all. I mean, we go into Iraq and, you know end up helping Iran, who at the same time, you know, Bush is very bellicose towards Iran during his administration, while at the same time essentially helping them out and working with them to create this sort of Shiistan right. area in Iran, which is yeah. absurd on its face at the same time. That, or you know, years later, I should say, you know, we're kind of belligerent towards Syria because we want to hurt Iran. But now even just a year after they tried to invade Syria and go after Assad, now we have to go into Syria, but not to hurt Assad. Now it's to hurt these other guys who have sprung up, these ISIS guys. And all because they got rid of Saddam Hussein, you know, the guy in the olive green and the black beret and the clean-shaven chin right. who didn't even believe in Muhammad and Allah, who was a, basically a secular commie fascist who worshipped himself and was no danger to America and could never have been, or his sons either, in a thousand years. Right. Right. I mean, these were bad guys, the, the Hussein family, but they were essentially just more like local mob bosses than anything else. Not really a global threat or, or anything they were made out to be. Is that essentially what, what your analysis would be? Yeah. I mean, hey, when you look at uh, Baghdadi, you don't think if only Uday and Kusay were here? <laughs> if only we could turn back the clock. So let's talk more about ISIS specifically. I mean, you know, we can analyze everything that the United States government has done to lead up to where we are now with this group. But, you know, the question is, now what? I mean, considering what's done is done, what do you think that the U.S. foreign policy should be towards ISIS? I think that the U.S. government should be abolished and Pentagon first and, and CIA and all those guys. And then that's it. And then the American people ought to send kind wishes to the national governments of Europe that they use their federal police to please help keep these guys out of our country, our now stateless, free land where we live. There's absolutely nothing that the U.S. government can do to fix this problem. And there are a few convenient things going for us. The number one thing that we have going for us is that these guys really are the fanatical lunatics that they are portrayed as being in the propaganda. You can just go on a live leak and watch uh, dozens of videos of the Islamic State machine gunning and otherwise murdering helpless, innocent, bound prisoners by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and bragging about the women that they rape, that they buy and sell because it says we can in the Bible and, and whatever craziness. And, and, and they are just, you know, to them, the final solution to the Shiite problem is kill all of them. I mean, they really are nutsos. And so, everybody hates them. Everybody hates them. And if you look at a map of Iraq, or if you got one in your head, all you got to do is work with me counterclockwise here. You got all the land from Baghdad down to Kuwait is all controlled by the Iraqi army, mm -hmm. a.k.a. Shiite militia one, and, and the rest of the Shiite militias. The Badr Corps, the Mahdi army, Asseb al-Ahak, and whatever it is, Hezbollah, Iraqi Hezbollah. All those Shiite militias, they control Shia Stan, and there ain't a damn thing that the Islamic State can do about it. It took the army, the U.S. Army and Marine Corps to give Baghdad to the Shiites. The Islamic State cannot take it back. They just can't, and they won't. And then you got the Kurds, and they have their mountains, and they have their Peshmerga, and they're 
probably safe and earable. They certainly have American power there to, to help keep them out. But even without American power there, they're pretty safe up in Kurdistan. Their control over Kirkuk is maybe a bit more tenuous. But uh, even if the Iraqi, even if the Islamic State got Kirkuk, that wouldn't necessarily mean they controlled all that oil. Um, but anyway, and then you got the Turks in the north, and the Turks apparently love the Islamic State, but they're certainly in no way threatened by it. And they have plenty of military power enough to keep the Islamic State out if they ever thought that they were threatened by them. Then you have the Kurds who've been holding their own, the Syrian Kurds who've been holding their own at Kobani for uh, weeks now against everything the Islamic State can throw at them to try to take that town. You have Bashar al-Assad, who's backed by Iran and Hezbollah and Russia, and who controls basically the rump of what's left of Syria there by the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And then you have Jordan, and they have a, a powerful enough military not to invade and destroy ISIS probably, but certainly powerful enough to keep them out of Jordan and therefore out of Israel and prevent that from getting out of control. Then you have the American and Israeli-backed military junta that rules in Cairo and uh, their military force, their secular military force. And then you just got the desert keeping them out of Arabia. There's no way they could get, even make it to Riyadh. And if it came down to it, I guess uh, the Saudis would have all their hired help put on uniforms and go fight or something like that. But so, in other words, they're completely landlocked and by enemies. They have no trading partners in the world other than black market oil to Turkey, but they don't have any official relations, right? They'll never have a seat at the UN. They're not considered a legitimate state by any other state on the planet. They have no, no official relations with any other government. They're completely surrounded by enemies. And they're the kind of guys that if they tried to rule you, you would kill them. And that is what happened to them in 2006. And if you could X the Americans out of the question for a minute, it is the best solution to the problem, is let the local Sunnis decide they've had enough of this and get rid of them. And uh, it worked before it could work again. Now, they're a much more powerful organization than they were then. And they've made this guy Baghdadi is a lot smarter, uh, a lot older, I guess, and, and wiser than Zarqawi ever was. And so he's forged alliances with tribes and with Baathist generals. And he's, you know, kidnapped some too, tribal leaders and, and Baathist officers, holding them, you know, hostage in a sense. He's worked out the politics of how not to get stabbed in the back this time much better. So it'll be a harder mission for the Sunni Arabs to accomplish this time. But it'll be easier without our help than with it. And we've already seen from the results of the airstrike since August that the more the American white Christian crusaders, as everyone knows, in alliance with the Jewish Israelis, in alliance with the heretical Shiite dogs in the view of, of these fanatical Sunnis, that is, I'm uh, uh, paraphrasing their view, uh, obviously, we're just driving their recruitment. Barack Obama and his policy is just like George W. Bush and Osama, the indispensable ally of our enemy. But they can't just sit back and do nothing. And so what do they do? They make it worse and worse and worse and worse. And so that's where we're at. And, and, yet, and so what are their goals? They've announced goals like we're going to destroy the Islamic State. And they've announced means like we're going to send in some drones and maybe a few special forces guys. Well, how are you going to dislodge the Islamic State from Fallujah and Tikrit and Bakuba and Mosul, never mind Raqqa and all the towns in eastern Syria they control and the smaller towns? How are you going to drive them out of there with air power and special forces? This is not going to happen. In order to drive them out of Mosul, 
it's going to take some kind of foreign army to dislodge them. Or maybe, as we saw the other day in an attempt, a really lucky strike on the leadership of the Islamic State. If they can kill Baghdadi and his 10 closest buddies, maybe that'll be a game changer. It won't destroy it, the movement completely, but it, will, it could turn them back into an insurgency as opposed to a real pseudo-government. I mean, they really are creating a government right now, a real you know, nation-state right now. But you know, short of a real lucky so-called decapitation strike like that, it's going to take the Marines. And if you listen to the debates on TV, you know the debate is Obama saying we will destroy them and the conservatives saying you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough. And even Obama's own military commanders will not shut up about how I think we need ground troops. And I'm pretty sure we're going to need ground troops. And if, if I think we got to have ground troops, don't worry, Congressman, I'll tell the president. So and whatever. When, I mean, they're basically insubordinate at this point. You know, and Obama keeps sending a couple thousand more here and a couple thousand more there. At the very least, you could say they're, they're quite off message. But to take Mosul is going to take the Marine Corps. All those enemies of the Islamic State I named have them hemmed in. None of them are capable of dislodging them from power. So, so it sounds like these ISIS guys, are they're legit bad guys. I mean, everything we read and hear about all the terrible things they're doing are, are certainly true, but at the same time, they're a threat to that region. They're a threat to the, you know, the towns that they've taken over. But, you know, when we hear guys like Lindsey Graham out there saying that they're a threat to the United States itself, you know, they're like they're going to come, I don't know, swim over here or what? I mean, that, that is just nonsense. Well, I think they might want to do attacks here, but for what purpose? To try to draw us back into war over there. How do you get at the Americans? The Americans, as you just said, live way the hell over here in the New World. What are you going to do about that? The Americans have all the planes and ships in the world, but they don't. They're, the best they can do is get on an airliner and try to blow up their underpants, something <laughs> like that. Although, you know, if that guy had been more patient and had just landed in Detroit and got a gun and gone to an elementary school and did it in the name of jihad, you could see how that would be as bad as September 11th as far as the PR goes. I mean, just look at what they did. They cut off two American reporters' heads, grown men who put themselves in danger, knowingly were brutally murdered. But still, that amounted to a costless belly. They murdered two Americans who put themselves in danger over there, and that was enough to start the war this time. So I think that they are a threat to the American people in the sense that the slightest little thing that they could get away with doing over here, if they could do one small attack with one rifle at one sporting event or something, that could be a huge game changer as far as the reaction of TV and the state and the American people. And I think that they are motivated to do that. I don't think that we are their first target right now. I think they got their hands full. But again, they love it. When they said, I swear, you can go and find the article at antiwar.com by Jason Ditz. The night that the airstrikes started, August 7th, right? You can find where Jason Ditz wrote, the jihadis condemn slash welcome the American strikes and vow revenge. They say, we're going to kill you. How dare you bomb us? You're now back at the top of the list of our enemies, you far enemy Americans. And then secondly, they said, thank you so much for bombing us because you just helped us recruit thousands of new people to our movement, proving that we were right, that it's the forces of righteousness versus the crusaders, etc. And so I don't think they have magical powers to get here and do, you know, amazing things. When Lindsey Graham says they're going to kill us all, I just don't know. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Right. It's not that their intentions aren't evil. And we can see how the lone wolf attack too. You know, it only takes one guy 
to do enough damage to cause a total freakout on TV, and that's all you need. That's the purpose of terrorism is to cause a reaction, you know? What do you think the motivation then is? I mean, I, I got to think that a lot of these guys in the Pentagon and the Obama administration, while they're certainly evil, they can't be complete idiots, and they can't actually think that these sort of limited bombing strikes in Iraq and Syria are really going to uproot ISIS. So what do you think the, the real motivation is in these interventions? Is the end game still sort of intervening against Assad in Syria, or is the end game really getting into Iran? Or well, what do you see as the bigger picture of all this? Well, I don't think it's all very decided. I mean, I think it's a real problem. I mean, on one hand, I think the, the first part of my answer to your question will be they think they're smart, that we're using drones and we're using air power because you know what Robert Pape says? He says suicide bombers are generated by foreign occupations. And he's got the social science mathematics from the University of Chicago to prove it. And so somehow Robert Pape, nine years later, was successful at beating this truth into the minds of some people in the American foreign policy establishment that suicide terrorism is a reaction to occupation. So they think, okay, well, great. We'll just use drones then, right? It's just like Paul Wolfowitz said. He goes, you know, the reason bin Laden attacked us was because of our bases in Saudi Arabia. So that's one of the great things about invading Iraq is now we can move all those bases up into Iraq out of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> no, right? Anyway, so they're claiming they've learned that Wolfowitz lesson now that it's the bases, it's the ground troops, it's the, the boots on the ground that, that drive the, the people crazy and, and make them want to suicide kill you. So, uh, so we'll just drone them. We'll use our scalpel instead of a hammer. And instead of doing, you know, night raids and sweeps house to house like Donald Rumsfeld, we'll go in there and we'll be surgical and smart like a good Democrat. And yet, of course, you can see it's still, it's as counterproductive, it's still thermodynamics and action-reaction kind of a thing. And the other ingredient in all this is just the length of time that has gone on. It's sort of like with the lone wolf attacks cropping up in Canada and in New York a couple of weeks ago, where there are going to be people on the margin who will ally themselves with the other side and do something like that. But part of the equation it's a, is you know the, the function of the length of time that we've been at this now. It's the same kind of thing where now you're talking about a whole new generation of Mujahideen. We talked about the new generation of Mujahideen from Iraq War II, right? After Afghanistan and, and then, you know, Bosnia and Chechnya and all that. There's a whole new generation of Mujahideen from Iraq War II. Now it's a whole new generation of Mujahideen from Iraq War III and the Syrian Civil War. And all this blowback is going to keep coming. So... Oh, and then, as you said, mixed into that, this metastasizing problem of jihadi terrorism is this American policy that still can't help but prioritize Israel's foreign policy, which is they hate Iran and they hate Hezbollah and they hate Assad in Syria, even though Assad might as well be an Israeli spy. He's so loyal to their interests. He hadn't made a peep about occupied Golan Heights the whole time he's been in power. I mean, he backs Hezbollah, but they're not an offensive threat to Israel. They only have the ability to defend themselves. So the Israeli policy is crazy. And, and of course, it's, it's avowed. It's no secret. You can read it in the Jerusalem Post that their policy, as Michael Oren, their former ambassador of the United States, put it, is that we prefer these bad guys to those bad guys. Yes, these bad guys use suicide attacks and beheadings, but those bad guys are backed by Iran. 
And so you have John McCain and the whole Israel lobby in Washington, D.C. are still stuck on the idea that ISIS's number one enemy in Syria, the Syrian government, should still be our priority. And that we should be creating an entire new army and an entire new government for all of Syria that, in its brand newness, will then take on the al-Nusra Front, who are basically al-Qaeda in Syria, still loyal to Zawahiri, the Islamic State on one side and, and whatever other Mujahideen on that side, and will fight Assad, Hezbollah, uh, backed by Assad and Hezbollah, backed by Iran and Russia, and and this is I don't know by what black magic this is supposed to take place, but but this is the policy they insist on, because they just can't get over, you know, their backstabbing of Bashar al-Assad, who after all used to torture and murder Mujahideen for Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, you know, just like uh, Muammar Gaddafi did. The phrase that springs to mind to me is. What a mess. I mean, it just all sounds like such a mess when the U U.S. government just decides to intervene all over the place. And what might start out as some kind of maybe focused foreign policy that obviously libertarians like us are going to disagree with anyway just becomes a, a, a really a schizophrenic foreign policy where they're just shooting here, shooting there, aligning here, aligning here, and it never actually becomes anything coherent. Now, Scott, we recently had midterm elections here in the United States, and Republicans have basically come into power controlling the Senate and Congress. How do you see the Republicans affecting foreign policy? Do you think this will increase the push for ground troops, or do you see that actually will be pushed harder in Congress, or how do you see that all playing out? Yeah, well, I think it's going to be a disaster, and right back to the schizophrenia, the first thing they're going to do is try to thwart Obama's nuclear deal with Iran, which I'm a 1,000% for. They never were making nuclear weapons. It's a red herring, big fake issue, and it's time to put it to bed by signing this nuclear deal. But then, of course, Obama, I mean, he's Obama. So he can't just do the right thing. He already has made it known or it's been made known that he doesn't just want to make it a peace with Iran, not even a peace, just a nuclear deal that could be the start of a path to peace. No, he wants to ally with them again, just like George W. Bush in Iraq against the Islamic State. You know, he just he can't leave good enough alone. He has to make it horrible. So now here, John McCain and Lindsey Graham, they're the two senators as much as Hillary Clinton uh, most and Joe Biden, uh, most responsible for pushing us into war from the legislative branch back in 2002 and three against Saddam Hussein and for keeping us in the war. We can't leave now. The violence will get worse. We can't leave now. We're not done accomplishing the sectarian cleansing of Baghdad. We have to stay and accomplish all of the Ayatollah's goals before we leave, they insisted. And now they go, oh my God, Obama wants to work with Iran in Iraq? Why? It's treason. It's unconscionable. And they're going to try to use that to uh, which I agree that it's totally the wrong thing to do, immoral and a backfire and everything else, like I already explained. But anyway, these hypocrites say, uh, no, we should not ally with Iran, who is really the Iraqi government, uh, Baghdad government's uh, best allied force over there. We should just go over there, ignore them, and fight the war for their sock puppets in Baghdad anyway. And it's never enough. Never enough. And all the analysis, and maybe it's a little bit overdone because the midterm congressional election was not decided on foreign policy. But Hawks, a lot of them, did real well. And including uh, now Senator Tom Cotton, who uh, is as belligerent as John McCain in every way and is probably, you know, could be more formidable for a long time to come. He's Bill Crystal's protege. I mean, this kid is outright down, not just with 
you know, a hawkish foreign policy, but he actually studied all about Leo Strauss and how the most powerful and ambitious among us ought to rule because they're ruling after all, aren't they? And this kind of... <laughs> Sounds like a real peach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, an avowed Straussian, Bill Christolian, uh, Tom Cotton coming in. And Rand Paul, of course, never was better than half-assed on this stuff. And they're going to destroy him because he's not willing to really know his, to really do the work and know his stuff and really fight for a sound position. He's mealy-mouthed, uh, half-assed on everything, trying to appease everybody on all sides, trying to keep his father's supporters uh, liking him still, but trying to keep the war party's heat off. And it's a horrible strategy. Instead, he should just throw down the gauntlet and just say, no, you're wrong, and here's why, and just fight him. And he's already conceded, I don't know, half the battle, a quarter of the battle to them, I think. And I think, for now, it seems, the feeling that it was sort of the rise of a, of a less hawkish, more Tea Party-ish, more populist, less warmongery type uh, Republican kind of feeling is now gone and everybody's saying oh no now it's uh, you know the return of the hawks and george bush's men and all this kind of thing and i mean i gotta admit i don't know what to tell you mark i see john mccain on tv and he looks great i mean his <laughs> doctors are just awesome there i don't know if they just shoot the b12 straight into his brain every morning or what but He's doing well, and he's going to be there for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's just <laughs> nothing we can do. We're just stuck with this guy. And now he's the chair of the Armed Services Committee again. And that is frightening. That is truly frightening that he has somehow found himself not only alive still somehow, but in a greater position of yeah. power when it comes to foreign policy than he's arguably ever been in before. And see, and Obama's got the same Rand Paul problem. Obama could just say, look, Americans, when it comes to foreign policy, tell me something. Do you really wish John McCain was the president? Do you really think we'd have been better off to have him waging our wars the last six years? And that'd be how to, you know, destroy Putin, blast his eardrums with 300 million Americans singing in unison. Hell no. You know, we know most of us, probably those of us who've thought about it, have figured there's at least a damn good chance we'd all be dead in a nuclear war with Russia by now if John McCain had been elected in 2008. So Obama should mock him. Obama should not concede anything to him. John McCain, are you kidding me? Give him his medicine and put him <laughs> in a rocking chair in the corner. That's what I would say if I was the president of the United States. I would mock and ridicule everything he says. You want to give your son to John McCain to go get killed? Go right ahead. But I'm not going along with it. But he's a coward. And, uh, and just like Rand Paul, he concedes half the argument to the Hawks. And so he gives up the rest. That's the thing about Rand. I mean, I, when he first, you know, came onto the scene, I mean, any libertarian who's been a fan of Ron Paul all this time really wanted to love Rand Paul. And I mean, I was certainly a backer of him when he first ran for Senate back in 2010. And in the dream world, he would take principled stances, especially on foreign policy, especially on this area that we agree is so neglected and yet is the most damaging thing the U.S. government does in the world. And yet it does seem that he, while he's definitely better than most Republicans and maybe most in Congress, that's not really saying that much in, in and of itself. And it, he really seems to just kind of toe that line where he wants to be more reasonable, quote unquote, with foreign policy, whatever that means. But at the same time, will 
push a lot of the same kind of taglines forward regarding our quote-unquote special relationship with Israel, regarding American power in the world, all these sorts of neo-Connie type lines he still inserts into his dialogue to the point that, I mean, I couldn't even tell you what Rand Paul's actual foreign policy is, which is, you know, probably worse than any stance he could take. I mean, if he was just a full neocon, at least I could say, okay, I get what you are now and I can condemn you for that, but he can't even seem to really do that. So, I mean, do you think Rand has any kind of principled view at all, or is he just way too concerned with political success that that becomes the last priority? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the latter there. I Well, you know, I really think he just doesn't have much principle. I mean, you could say for any of these politicians, you know, other than the one you hate the most or whatever, that all these guys think they're doing the right thing up there, trying to they rationalize away the evil that they do because of the good that they get to accomplish instead. And it's a more pragmatic thing. And that's the way the system works. And you got to do it. And there's a thousand ways to phrase why it's okay. And so in that sense, that makes him the exact same animal as every other congressman. That's exactly what did not count for his father, who, you know, basically had this miraculous situation where he had delivered two thirds of the population of his congressional district or something like that. And so in every family, it was like, we're the Johnsons and all six of us, we vote Ron Paul. He delivered (laughs) our children into the world. He's our guy. And. So he was just safe. There was nothing the lobby could do about it. There was nothing that anybody could do about it. His own constituents liked him. And all the other horrible parts of American politics that prevent people like Ron Paul from getting anywhere near the Congress were rendered null and void by, you know, is like a magic alignment of the stars, basically, because of just his square conservative personality and his hometown you know, he's just not an ambitious guy. He's a very decent guy. You know, if he was a really loud, like angry, outspoken, you know, Jim Trafficant, like ranting and raving and pointing his finger at everybody kind of guy with all the same things that he has to say, it wouldn't have worked. But it's just Ron's kind of peculiar personality and his peculiar situation allowed him to just be himself down there giving speeches on the House floor whenever he felt like it and nobody could stop him. And so. It was just the the perfect bully pulpit. And so Rand has a different mission, which is to attain power. And of course, if you're within arm's reach or you think you're within arm's reach of the brass ring of actually the presidency, never mind being a senator, but actually being the president. I mean, what wouldn't you compromise if it was the road to the presidency? I'm asking the mind of a senator, of any senator or any governor in America. What wouldn't you do for a chance at that? You know, and so my thing about it is this. And I guess, you know, what the hell do I know? But it seems to me like the American people, say, for example, if Ron Paul was Rand's age right now, it seems to me and was, you know, a little better spoken the way Rand is. You know, Ron Paul, and part of it's just because he's getting a little old, he gets kind of a little jumbly. If you don't already know what he meant, then sometimes you can lose him or whatever. But if, if Ron was still young and was a little bit better spoken kind of thing and was really leading from that hardcore principal position... He might not win the presidency. I guess he wouldn't still win the presidency. But he would absolutely change America. He would lead America in a better direction the same way we saw him do, especially in 2007 and eight, but also in 2012. And what was his strongest issue? Why, why is it that Ron went from being the favorite congressman of one guy in every neighborhood in America to having millions and millions and millions 
of followers all around the world. I think we can look at that one moment in the debate with Rudy Giuliani where he called him out on foreign policy, on how our foreign policy creates terrorism. And put Rand Paul in that same position. Oh no, it's radical Islam. Oh no, right. of course Israel is great and the Palestinians, I've never heard of them. And nah, nah, nah. But Ron <laughs> Paul, and Ron Paul did not fight back. I mean, it's not just that he said the right thing. He was like all Zen Buddha and just said, hey man, you know, the CIA actually coined the phrase themselves. It's called blowback. It means that there's consequences. And if you ignore consequences to your actions, then you do so at your own peril. See? And like he just, it was just perfect. And especially because Ron is not stepping aside and allowing his son to just run with the mantle. Ron is going to keep saying correct very controversial things and the reporters are going to keep coming to rand and saying well what about your dad says this and what about <laughs> your dad says that and what does rand say well you know my dad is his own guy and he says things and you can tell that he's just annoyed and wants to distance himself well what an idiot because his dad is the one who's right about everything not him it's the so-called radical position that's actually correct and that the american people actually agree with and that the American people loved Ron Paul for dealing with them honestly about. Listen, everybody, you might not like this. It might even make you cry because of what happened to your nephew over there in the war. But this is the truth about it, okay? That attitude, that was what people responded to. And Ron Paul changed the whole world, not just America. I mean, he, he let... There are vast numbers of pro-capitalists and conservatives and right-wingers and libertarians and run-of-the-mill people who could have never identified with a bunch of Jane Fonda and Michael Moore, anti-American, you know, kind of pro-socialist, Susan Sarandon-type, anti-war, whatever. They just can't see themselves identifying with that at all. And Ron Paul came out and said, I'm more anti-war than Michael Moore. And they went, wow, cool, so I can be anti-war like you. Okay, that's easy, right? And he changed, he changed the whole society. And looking back 100 years from now, it's going to be a subheading in the history books of what this guy Ron Paul did. And Rand could do that. All Rand has to do is start everything he says with, well, actually, my dad's right about that, you idiot reporter. Let me explain why. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe he wouldn't be the president, but he'd be the best senator in world history. How about that? That's yeah. pretty good. Absolutely. And instead, he might just be a, a guy who waffled the line and ran for president once, and then we never heard from him again. Or maybe we still hear from him waffling the line after that i don't really know but you know if if rand did take your advice and kind of follow the ron paul path i think he would actually be a lot more successful even politically because i think if ron was like you said 30 years younger he could have stayed in congress and really achieved even more political success going forward because of the way he's waking people up because of the fiery base meanwhile rand seems to just kind of want to push that fiery base to the side and say all right well send me some money sure but you know we're not going to really talk about all the things you want to talk about Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been an absolute pleasure. Your knowledge of foreign policy and all this stuff is absolutely exceptional. And I you know maybe we'll have to have you back again on sometime to talk about some more of this stuff. But um, now before I let you go, why don't you just run down all the ways people out there can listen to your show uh, in various different avenues, uh, find your work in general, and contact you. All right. Well, I'm uh, at scotthorton.org, and that's where I keep all the archives. There's 3,500 interviews going back to 2003 there. And you can sign up for the podcast feed for just the interviews or the whole show archives either way. And I'm on noon to 2 Eastern time at the Liberty Radio Network, LRN.FM, on uh, the weekdays. And on Sunday mornings, I'm on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. And then uh, I'm also on in Davis, California. I'm on in the Inland Empire on uh, KUCR. 
Davis on K-Dirt, and uh, a few other places syndicated around. And uh, you can sign up on uh, iTunes and Stitcher for the podcast feed stuff. And you can follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. All right, be sure to check out the Scott Horton Show once again. And thank you so much. And keep up the great fight, Scott. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Mark. Take care. We'll be back after a little break. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at lionsofliberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set Money Free. What every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve. Set Money Free. With a special foreword by Ron Paul. Set Money Free. It has easy to understand questions and answers. Set Money Free. Buy Set Money Free on Amazon.com. Set Money Free. Chris Rossini's Set Money Money free. Set money free. Set money free. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Scott Horton. And the depth of his knowledge, as you heard, on foreign policy is truly astounding. And I really appreciate the work that he's been doing out there, trying to expose all the machinations, the lies of the neocons and those who control U.S. foreign policy. So please do yourself a favor and check out The Scott Horton Show. Now, Scott brought up Rand Paul and how he sort of waffles on foreign policy. He kind of toes the line between neocons who want to sort of express American power all over the world and between the sort of more reasonable, restrained foreign policy, neither of which is an anti-war position or a principled position, I might add. And, you know, we've debated Rand Paul on this show before as well. He was a big topic during our Origin special that we got into, which you can, of course, find at the Lions of Liberty archive, lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. That's episode 52 and 53, our origin story. Please do check that out. But, you know, it's that lack of a consistent message with Rand Paul that really bothers me personally and rubs me the wrong way. 
And it stops me from coming out and fully supporting him, you know, altogether. Now, he's better than most for sure. And on many issues, I'll support him, you know, when he wants to sort of scale back the drug war and, and little things like that. And those are positive things. But even on the drug war, he, he won't come out and call for full legalization, call for a principled stance, call for respect for individual rights. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you can't present a consistent philosophy, well, you know, in our twisted system, you may achieve political victory, you may win some votes, but you're not going to win hearts and minds, which is, of course, is what we aim to do here at Lions of Liberty, at our website, lionsofliberty.com, and here on the show. And, you know, if you like this show, if we're winning your hearts and minds a little bit, maybe just a smidge, well, there are some ways you can help us. And the biggest way, I think, by far, that you can help us get more ears on this thing is, well, of course, you can just tell all your friends. You can post it on your social media. You can come join our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, over at the Twitter, at Lions of Liberty, over on Google+. We're all over the place. You can share this show with your friends and family, but the biggest thing you can do to get this show to people you don't even know, you've never even met before, is by going over to iTunes. Even if that's not how you subscribe to the show, you might subscribe on Stitcher, you might catch us on lrn.fm. You know, however you do, please consider going over to iTunes, clicking that subscribe button, giving us a rating, giving us a review. Subscribe and rate and review. If you can do those three things for us, it will greatly help increase the presence of this show out there. And it's a very simple thing. Five minutes of your time maximum, and you've done your part. And of course, the other thing you can do is keep coming back and listening yourself. I'm only going to ask one more little tiny thing of you guys. And that is, of course... To live long and live free.